Joining me now on Hunkering Down with Peter Shorsh. Wait a minute, I'm not Peter Shorsh. No, my name is Jay Caruso. I'm one of the guys that typically does behind-the-scenes stuff with Peter's podcast. And I'm here to tell you right now that Peter decided to take his talents to South Beach. Well, in a sense. No, actually, what, what Peter did was a moderated a discussion, a trustee luncheon with the Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce. Peter spoke with uh, several Florida state representatives and state senators to do a legislative recap, and I'm sure probably issues related to coronavirus came up as well. So that's enough for me. I'll go ahead and get you started listening to this discussion with the Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for having me. Uh, this, is, um, this is surreal. Uh, I'm used to hosting these at Tiger Bays and wearing blazers and so forth. Right now I'm in a collared shirt and I'm not gonna tell you what I have on below the screen. Um, but I'm, I, I'm also excited to be talking to a group from South Florida. So often I'm in Tampa Bay and so I'm going to apologize in advance. Um, I have probably the worst accent in the history of the world and I butcher the rolling R. I've spoken with this several times with Senator Flores. I think she has tried to coach me a couple times. Uh, so you'll have to forgive me uh, for that as well. I think uh, I'm going to try and ask as many questions as possible. Um, I kind of like the Chuck Todd model where I think the panelists need to do the talking and get information from them and then also get your questions. But I will uh, follow up where I think uh, follow up is necessary. I think it's important to, if there's a theme to all of what we're gonna be talking about today, even though this is a post-session uh, wrap-up, I really look at this as a almost like a pre-session wrap-up or a pre-session panel. Um, so much of what was accomplished over the last 60 days of the legislative session probably is up in the air right now, whether it be budgetary, uh, whether it be some policies that are gonna to have to be revised. So we're gonna be talking about what was accomplished, but with all of it is taken with the caveat that they may be, the lawmakers may be called back into special session um, sometime to either address some of the money that's coming down from the federal government or to respond further from, uh, to the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, I do have a, a list of policy questions, but I'm gonna start off with something coronavirus related. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna urge our panelists to, I think that we could, we could wallow all day in the, 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 the terrible things that are happening outside. I wanna focus on some of the policies that you all accomplished that probably will not be impacted as much by the pandemic. And so we're, my list of questions has a lot, of, has a lot to do with that. Um, that being said, we can't not address coronavirus. So I wanna ask each one of you to answer in 20 or 30 seconds, when did coronavirus get real for you? When did it become apparent to you um, that this was a 9-11 style event? And I'll start with you, Senator Flores, since uh, this is the last uh, panel that you will be doing, or the last round of these panels that you will be doing for yeah. at least the foreseeable future. Great, great, thank you. And um, I think it's, uh, this is you know, definitely a cool way that we have pivoted to, the, uh, to this new normal. Um, and so, you know, you're right in couching kind of, um, I almost forget what we even did during session. It seems like it was a different lifetime ago. 
Um, so I would answer that question two ways. Um, first is I think the time that it became most real, real was when, um, if we can remember back in, and when there was a time when we thought kids would still go back to school um, and it was announced that, you know, not going back to school was going to be extended to about mid-April. Um, that actually was kind of a more real moment for me than when they extended it um, to the end of the year. I think at that point we kind of expected it. Um, but initially, um, you know, for the first couple of weeks, I think that many of us, uh, of, you know, around the, the state, but maybe, you know, around the country, we're just kind of under the impression that, well, this might be something that if we just kind of stay indoors for, you know, two to four weeks, it will, um, you know, it'll, it'll all be okay after that. And now, um, second answer to the question is, as we are now um, coming up on two months of this, I think that more and more people are starting to realize that, look, this is something that's going to last, not just for the next several months, but I would say our world will change. There are some ways that our world will change forever, much like there are ways that our world changed after 9-11. And it's hard for us to imagine a time when, you know, um, if you had a friend coming in from um, out of town on the air, airplane that you could meet them at the gate, right? Like, do you even remember that we used to be able to do that? Um, there will be things that will change that, that we will say, wow, I can't believe we ever went to a concert with 50,000 people. Um, so there's a lot that'll be changing and, um, and a lot for these guys to do next year when you're in session. I'm glad uh, I won't be there. <laughs> Senator Pizzo, you have, uh, you have been very active uh, on the unemployment front or trying to solve that issue. Um, what, when did coronavirus become real for you? Uh, Peter, I think it was the last day of session. Uh, I had asked Senator Bradley on the floor if Florida was prepared to float at least for a month an extension of payroll taxes and sales tax that were due and uh, payable March 20th. Um, and, and everyone on the Senate floor was, was in earnest listening and, and just seeing if that was going to do it. But personally for me, uh, my wife recovered from tuberculosis two years ago. The cavity in her lung never closed, and so her uh, her doctor said, "If if you get this, you're going to die." So that was uh, that was a wake up call for me. And then, you know, we had a doctor of the day in the Senate uh, who was with us in February, who's texting me photos of, of the ICU at a particular hospital where they're all wrapped in garbage bags, and some local uh, medical facilities calling me asking me for help to try to get masks and try to get gowns. So I, I would say late March we understood it. Uh, and then, you know, we've all been feverishly making preparations and, and trying to do what we can. None of us thought we were going to become brokers of medical supplies out of China, but uh, we've all found ourselves in that situation. Let's switch to the other chamber. Uh, Representative Alupas, um, when did uh, coronavirus hit, hit home for you? Yeah, so, so thank you again, Peter, for doing this, and, and thank you to the chamber. You know, I, I'll sort of follow in Senator Flores' footsteps. I think for me personally, uh, when they called us back to vote on the budget and having every member go through a wellness check and, and take a temperature and meet with a doctor and to have the chamber empty and the building empty, I think that was the moment where you realized, okay, things are, are going to be different. But I think more impactfully, and this, this transcends just the example I'm going to give, I can remember probably about three and a half weeks ago, um, one of the issues that I've, I've been working hard on is emergency child care. For first responders and healthcare workers. And I can remember a child care director from Hialeah calling me and saying, 
okay, we're trying to stay open. We know that we need to serve our community, but the state is putting into place guidelines that are impossible for us to achieve. Social distancing doesn't apply to three-year-olds. How do you keep a group of three-year-olds six feet apart from one another? And as I, as I had that conversation, had more conversations, I just, it really opened my eyes to how complex every industry policy is going to be in this new landscape. And there is never going to be a perfect answer. And I think what we have to do as elected officials is use all of the data that is available to us, um, you know, guided by, you know, public health experts and, and do what we, we hope is best for our, for our communities. But it was, really, it was really that moment speaking to the child care director who wanted to serve her community, who wanted to serve her students, um, really articulating all of the challenges that were going to be upon her, her, her teachers, her families, her students, and it wasn't something that she was dealing with in that in that moment. It was a challenge that she foresaw for uh, the foreseeable future, and 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 how were they going to survive from that? And those conversations have just, um, you know, where I'm having them multiple times a day with folks from all different industries. But that was the moment where I really started to understand how how complex this is all going to be. I like to keep my panel on its toes. I'm not changing the question for everybody, but I will ask Representative Duran. Uh, instead of what was the last, um, <clears throat> when did coronavirus get real for you? Could you tell us what your last normal day looked like uh, before coronavirus? Great question. So I would say, um, I would think back to the uh, end of February, about February 29th. It was the weekend. We had come back into, you know, we come back every weekend into town flying in. Uh, and when we went to, we wanted to go to this seafood festival down in Homestead, uh, and we stopped in to see if we could pick up, we were starting to hear ruminations about this, but we went into a CVS to pick up some hand sanitizer and some of that other, those other materials, and realizing right then and there, none of it was there. Uh, everyone was starting to wear masks. You are starting to see folks wearing masks and just going, wow, this is uh, a very different uh this is a very different situation that we are in at this moment in time. And then I would just remember start, uh, one, of the, one of those, when we were called back for, to, to, to vote on the budget, I just remember looking into the plane, walking through the airport, and there was like me and 10 people in a bustling airport. You know, that this is a normally a bustling airport. You have to do the dance to get through to get to, the, to where you need to go. And to be able to just own the airport in a sense, walking through that place, uh, and then looking behind me when I was in a plane that's usually packed and only about five people in it, it really kind of uh, shocked uh, my own conscience on how, where we were and where we were going. Representative Fernandez Barquin, uh, when did coronavirus get real for you? Uh, I would say, I, I would say uh, it got real for me in the conversation I had with a dear friend of mine who's, a, who's an ER physician. He's a doctor in the ER in uh, St. Petersburg. Florida, and he called me, I want to say just after, just before we adjourned session, and he was in a panic, and I've known him since I was, we've known each other since we're about 12 years old, I'm, I'm 37 years old now, so I've known this individual 25 years of my life, and I've never seen him um, in, the, in the hectic state that he was in when he was speaking with me. And, and he was warning me and saying that this, this has a potential unless we, we, we start to slow down the economy and do social distancing, this can have a catastrophic uh, effect on, on 
many individuals' lives, on many individuals who are vulnerable, and, and on the elderly specifically. And um, I think our last lawmaker, uh, Representative Joseph, when did coronavirus get real for you? Um, it got real for me on two levels. The first level was um, when we were, it was the last week or so of session, and a couple of the lawmakers, there was a, a little scare that they might have gotten the coronavirus because they were exposed. So we all had to leave the chamber while they got tested or maybe not even get tested, screened to get tested. And it occurred to me that if this, if had any of them actually been um, infected, it was, it was likely that we all would have gotten infected pretty quickly. <laughs> um, and I feel like at that time, I didn't think we were prepared to really take the threat as seriously as, you know, a lot of us since then have taken it. Um, but that was like level one, because I'm always, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm paid to think bad thoughts. I'm thinking worst case scenario. And how do you mitigate worst case scenario? And we were not ready for the worst case scenario by any stretch. And then fast forward, um, you know, I had planned to take a little mini vacation before, right after session, and that wasn't possible because everything was up in shandles, countries were being locked down, and, you know, you're looking around the world to see the impact in all these other countries and what we're doing about it. And I have a lot of family in the healthcare field from doctors, nurses, and this is the beginning of um, Nurses Week, by the way, so shout out to all the nurses. Mm -hmm. um, but hearing the stories like for example in new york i have family that's impacted so some have gotten it and recovered some have gotten it spread it to other families and they're in the process of quarantine and you know one unfortunately didn't make it so it's real on a very different level and if you're scrolling through facebook feeds you're seeing all the rest in peace coronavirus did this coronavirus did that like this is this is no joke so yeah it got it got real in waves all right, I appreciate your answers to all of that. Um, if coronavirus had not hit, uh, I think the big issue each of you probably would have been talking about was would be the teacher raises uh, that were put in place. Um, in fact, when we were going into session, um, a lot of us were saying that if Governor DeSantis could get that, he'd almost be smooth sailing to uh, 2022 at this point. Um, so let's talk about that issue for a second uh, in the framework of the current budget issues. Yesterday, uh, it was reported that March collections, tax collections are off $750 million. Um, that has nothing to do with the numbers that are gonna be coming out in April. Uh, yes, we have reserves, but um, clearly the, the numbers are getting hit uh, really bad. So I wanna ask each one of you all, do we keep the teacher raise package in place uh, going into uh, next year? Or is it something that we should go into special session and revise or take down in the next session? And I will start with the House this time, Representative Alupis, if you will. And if you can you know, keep your answer somewhere at around 30 to 45 seconds, uh, we will move through a lot of questions. Thanks, Peter. So obviously that was one of the, the highlights of the past session and my wife is a kindergarten teacher so or was a kindergarten teacher so I obviously understand the importance of it. Uh, I think we're all waiting to see what the budget impact is in the, in the middle of May and seeing what Amy Baker, Amy Baker comes back with but you know I, I've been around the legislature for 10 years on early childhood. I think it's a question of priorities. Um, teacher compensation needs to be a priority for us even in spite of the challenges that we have. So 
Uh, I think, and you think you're gonna hear this from a lot of the members, when we go back in there and we have to make uh, you know difficult decisions, that needs to be at the top of the list and ensuring that we are, are, are fully supporting our teachers and making sure that they get everything that they have, have worked so hard for. Okay, uh, I'm gonna skip right to, uh, right back to uh, Representative Joseph. What are your thoughts on, should the teacher pay increases stay in place or is that something that we need to uh, knock back uh, considering what's happening to the state uh, revenues? Sure, I would say the teacher raises should absolutely stay in place. I think a lot of times when we're looking at quote unquote cuts and what needs to be revised, our priorities get a little misplaced. Another thing that we passed um, this last session was um, a tax package. And within that tax package, there are a whole host of um, corporate advantages and incentives that instead of looking at things that impact our children, we could look at maybe scaling back some of those because those are things that have not been implemented yet and nor do they have to be before July. So if, if everybody understands that we're all in this together, um, there are other ways that we can um, address that, right? Teachers have been underpaid, state workers have been underpaid for quite some time. I think it took a lot to get us to the point where we could get them some raises um, and to have the political will to do so. Um, and I commend all of our colleagues on both sides of the aisle for getting there. Um, but I, I, I don't see why that even has to be on the table. Um, there are lots of other ways that we could look at our budget in a more equitable way um, so that, you know, it's not the people last. Um, I think this is one of those, those little low-hanging fruit areas where we can actually put people, meaning parents, teachers, students, um, first. Now, you just violated the number one uh, rule on my panels. You stole my question for down the road on the talks <laughs> about the uh, tax cut package uh, later on. But um, I'm gonna ask Senator Flores because, all right, Senator Flores, you don't have to run again. And so you don't have to put out a mailer that says, hey, I increased teacher pay, or I helped increase teacher pay uh, by hundreds of millions of dollars. So you get, you get to say a little bit more probably than some of the other folks that may be up uh, for election, even in a pandemic. So should uh, we keep the teacher pay raise package in place or should that uh, go on the, um, the, the budget, uh, on a revised budget cut list? Well, first of all, I think we absolutely should keep it. Um, second of all, make a prediction and say we absolutely will keep it um, because no matter what happens in the world, uh, I mean, I guess not no matter, but um, generally speaking, um, there will be an election in November. There will be an election in uh, two years from here and two years after that. And this is something that the governor talked about as being very important to him. So I would say that um, that would be last on the list of things that we would be cutting. Um, we had a, a, a little note in here from one of our uh, attendees, Senator Flores. I guess it's an easy question for you, but how smart were you to push for <laughs> moving legislative session to January as opposed to March? Because had you not, and had we not gotten that constitutional amendment, you all would be in session right now, or you would have been, yeah, you'd be wrapping up uh, basically this yeah. week or something like that. So. Um, uh -huh. Well, I mean, listen, get the so answer easy one there. Okay, I'm going to give a super quick, if I can give a quick story, because there's so many um, conspiracy theories as to why that happened. Um, so let me, because everyone, I don't know, it's all sorts of conspiracy theories. Let me tell you why we moved session to January, um, because we had just had a January session in 2012, um, and it was great because we all got to be home for spring break. Andy Gardner was going to be the next Senate president, 
And I said, hey, Andy, wouldn't it be cool if we could just do a session in January? And he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's pass a bill. And so that's why we had it in January. Um, so it's not because of elections or anything else. It was because um, Andy Gardner and Anita de Flores wanted to have spring break with our children. <laughs> Thank you. In um, Representative Fernandez Barquin, uh, one of the things that we are seeing right now is that school is changing and it's probably going to change. Um, even if we were to get a, uh, you know, a relaxation, but we don't have a vaccine. And I think most of my questions are framed like that, that we're not going to have a vaccine for about 18 months or so uh, at best. So um, can you talk to us about what the legislature did this past session to address early learning and VPK as it, uh, and, and we'll have other people uh, answer in, but I just think that that's so important right now, you know, getting that policy area. Can you talk a little bit about what the legislature did there? Yeah, from my understanding, the, 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 the alterations that we made to VPK was uh, we, we essentially remodeled it and made it uh, uh, basically strengthened and, uh, and, and remodeled it uh, in order to improve VPK and to make it more accessible for more, uh, for more children, um, which I think, uh, I think education is, is, is fundamental um, for 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 society and and for having an educated population and and for further economic long term economic growth and and studies show also that the the younger that we can get children into the educational classroom setting, uh, the more the the better chances there are of um, of them having a academic success in the long run. Representative Lupus, I'm going to let you jump in on that one also because I know that that one's close to your heart. Um, can you uh, outline some of the things that? The legislature did this uh, last session on that issue? Uh, yeah, so this is the most frustrating part of this past session. Um, I, I think the bill that came through the House, which Representative Grawl and I co-sponsored, was probably the most transformative piece of legislation we've seen in pre-K in 15 years. Program started, was passed by Constitutional Amendment in 2002, goes into place in, in 2005. 2005, for just a little bit of history, we were spending $2,500 per child. Today, we're spending $2,437 per child. So we have somehow cut $63 out of every slot for pre-K um, and have not taken into consideration cost of living inflation and so forth. Now, the legislature in the budget uh, increased the VPK allocation by $49. But it is, it is about almost more than just money. It's about ensuring that, that the programs that children are going to are high quality, that the, that the curriculum is evidence-based, that the teachers have the support that they need. And I, and I got to be honest, I mean, it was, a, it was a piece of legislation that we worked on all summer long, brought all of the stakeholders together. I'll say this publicly, you know, early childhood advocates, of which I am one, we are crabs in a bucket and we will pull each other down and, and the enemy of, of, of good is perfect kind of a situation. And, and Representative Duran knows this because he and I worked together for a while on, on these issues. Um, and to see that bill make it through the House uh, and, not, and not finally, um, you know, get to the governor's desk, I think is just very frustrating because at the end of the day, you know, you have 180,000 kids in, in pre-K every single year. And the governor issued a press release last year showing that about 43% of the kids going into our kindergarten classrooms are not ready. So a little bit of math, you're looking at 75, 80, 90,000 students from our pre-K program who are going into kindergarten, not ready to be there. Uh, and then we're asking their kindergarten teachers to catch them up. And all the evidence shows that it is very difficult to ever catch a child up. So. You know, to me, we, the, the, the Orlando Sentinel just wrote a piece about it and the NIA report just came out. You know, I'm, I'm 
very glad that Florida has a universal pre-K program that every child can participate in. But until we get serious about making sure that that program is one of the highest quality, then, then we have a very serious mountain to climb. And again, I commend Representative Grawl because she digs deeper into the weeds than, than most people I know. Um, but again, just it's an issue of, like, like Representative Joseph said, it's an issue of priorities. A lot of times early learning falls on the back burner to some of the other educational silos. And to me, if, if we don't get that, if we don't get that right in a program that serves 180,000 students, then, you know, shame on us. Um, I'm getting, we're getting some questions in, um, and this is kind of a similar to the tax, or excuse me, to the teacher pay increase. And so um, it, one of the big accomplishments that you all uh, achieved this year was fully funding the Sadowski Affordable Housing Fund. Um, and then I know that uh, Senator Pizzo, you had worked on, I believe, um, a community development housing package. I believe Senator Flores was involved with that as well. So I'm going to go with Senator Pizzo and start there. And I'm probably going to ask all of you this, like the teacher pay question. Will the Sadowski fund still be fully funded? Or do you think, do you envision that getting swept um, if we're going to need, oh, was I out for a second there? All right, I'm back. Um, the question is, will Sadowski funds stay there or will that be swept given the economic realities right now? I'm gonna start with you, Senator Pizzo. I'm far more junior and less learned than Senator Flores on what, what happens year over year, but we have a number of pressing issues with a lot of gaps in funding. Uh, and I think, I think we're probably, the Sadowski funds probably susceptible to being rated uh, to a large part because we're gonna say, listen, uh, we have shortfalls, whether it's with unemployment and other housing issues or relief or local or regional uh, issues that no one's really gonna have the ability to criticize. I don't think the Sadowski Fund's gonna be rated for pet projects and things that don't have a broad reach or, or uh, do not have some organic feel to, to helping those in need. I just think it's gonna be some parallel program or service uh, that that money is going to be susceptible to be drawn from. Again, I think it'll be things that you can't really objectively argue against the money being used for. Um, but I think it's, a, I don't want to say it's disingenuous, but you, you mentioned 7097, the tax package that'll return $543 million back to Florida's largest corporate taxpayers, which I didn't vote no and object to, but given the circumstances we're in now, I think it was untimely to have signed that April 8th as one of the first five bills for the governor to sign without waiting, knowing that there was gonna be some furloughs and layoffs, without waiting to see if the 543 million could have been returned to those corporations with conditions, perhaps knowing that our unemployment system's not working, you know, for returning several million dollars to companies that we know are gonna furlough, maybe asking them to front payments and that the state would reimburse it sometime later. All I asked, you know, in a tweet, in a social media, any conversations with the governor's office, would it, it would have been nice to have given a pause saying, guys, you're still going to get this money back, but give us 90 days to see where we're at and then reconcile it. Obviously, it's after July 1st. But uh, yeah, I think the Sadowski Air game uh, this at this point because of necessary services that will have to be extended. I don't think people will object, Peter, if we say use some of that money to do broader testing or antibody antigen testing or uh, for other equipment and PPE for schools and things like that. I do think it's 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 ripe for for being rated. Uh, I was going to go to Senator Flores, but uh, Representative Joseph, you're hitting the uh, message board and saying 
Sadowski should not be uh, swept. So you want to explain, or you want to uh, make the case for why it should not be swept? I don't think we can hear you. Or okay, here it go. Here you go. Um, yeah. So now more than ever, there's a need for housing assistance. So I don't understand why we keep trying to put people last, like working people. So there are a lot of people right now, and you know, Senator Pizzo and I serve a lot of the same constituents who are having issues paying rent, who are having issues making their mortgage payments. And if we are the kind of state that refuses to intervene to let's say give people a 90 day, 100 day, 120 day pause, then we need to figure out a way to help people on a different end. It doesn't mean that the Sadowski fund can't be used. It should be used for, as one of the, the commenters made, um, Irby, you know, it should be used for its intended purpose. And there are lots of ways to help with housing assistance during this crisis that's actually meaning for meaningful for people. And just because the governor signed, you know, the, the tax package doesn't mean that, because it, it doesn't go into effect until July. It doesn't mean that we can't revisit it. Now, will they revisit it? Probably not. Um, you know, that's the reality of the situation, but the Sadowski Fund is meant for helping people with affordable housing. Now more than ever, there is a need for that. So those funds should not be swept and they should instead be used for their intended purpose. And it, now might be the time to be a little bit more creative on how those funds can be used, but no, it should not be used for something else. Uh, Senator Flores, 20 seconds on a prediction because we know you're wired in with leadership and so forth. Is Sadowski going to get swept? Prediction is that if we are um, called into a special session um, to redo the budget, it will because um, all other options failed. Um, so that's like a broad-based prediction. Is that maybe I'm the I'm, maybe I'm the only one that thinks this, but um, the budget was uh, full of issues that were very very important from a financial standpoint to. Um, to leaders in, in both chambers, um, you know, budget wins that I would say, let's call them Senate budget wins, um, teacher pay, paying for state salaries, for state workers, um, Sadowski fund, you know, uh, environmental funding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if, we have, if we go into a session to totally redo the budget, it will be because things are really, really, really bad um, because not many people, um, that are the decision makers want to go down that route. And you've offered to sell all of the books behind you <laughs> yes. to contribute to the general election fund or yeah. the general. I'll even, I'll, I'll even sign some of them. If you okay, want. thank you. <laughs> um, I know it's coronavirus world, but I, I do feel like we, I want to get one minute to two people really quick to talk about pieces of policy that I don't think that they have to do with coronavirus or the re response to it. Representative Fernandez Barquin, just as I'm doing my notes, this is an issue that's important to me. Um, can you talk about your domestic violence services bill for just give it a minute over uh, overview so the audience knows what you accomplished there? Yes, thank you, Peter. So in statute, uh, the, the state was obligated to contract with the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence, which was a statewide agency that coordinated domestic violence services uh, through through several shelters throughout the state. Um, and, and basically from my conversations with, the, with DCF, uh, they approached me uh, about this bill and about that agency. And I, and I started doing my own independent research. 
And it turned out that over the last two years or so, the CEO for the coalition had, had made roughly over $700,000. And then upon further, further inspection and further investigation, uh, it was learned that uh, there was some severe financial mismanagement going on. Um, and and I, I would argue fraud, essentially, on, on behalf of the coalition and on behalf of uh, several of the shelters. Uh, so I proposed a bill taking them out of, out of statute which would further uh, allow and empower DCF to contract directly, either directly with the shelters or to, or to contract with another statewide agency who can then work directly with the shelters. Um, so yeah, that, that was essentially Thank you the on that one. I'm gonna go another kind of tangential policy issue not related to Corona. Uh, Representative Duran, could you talk about House Bill 115 uh, to keep our, uh, I think it was called keep our graduates working. Um, if you'd like an opportunity to explain what you did there. Sure, 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 Peter, thank you. Uh, I would, this is a bill that uh, really kind of hit on one important concept here. And, and what we found out was there was uh, in state statute, a law that our health department on a day, on a month to month basis was required to go and pull any of the of those folks who had student loans that are delinquent, any uh, medical professional in the state of Florida, licensed in the state of Florida, if you were delinquent on your student loans, the Department of Health would be pulling those records, showing who was delinquent and beginning an investigation on that individual. Uh, basically becoming a uh, de facto credit, uh, uh, loan, loan collection agency to a certain extent. Uh, and they could also suspend your license. And so uh, for us, we thought through uh, that, that just doesn't make sense uh, on all sorts of policy levels. We shouldn't be in the business of putting people out of work. We shouldn't be in the business of building bigger ditches to climb for Floridians to climb out of. Uh, and so what our bill did was uh, remove any ability by the state to do that, to, remove, to take away someone's license solely because they are delinquent on a student loan. Uh, and if you think about it in this realm, in this world, the frontliners, the, uh, all of our medical professionals who have been at the front lines uh, there are a lot of them uh, who uh, have student loans and have this issue that they have to deal with. Some of them you've heard from hospitals that have been hemorrhaging that they may have to furlough some of their staff. So things like that really kind of hit home. And I think that the bill in perfect timing, uh, we were able to successfully pass it. Uh, Senator Brandis and I worked on on both ends, uh, bipartisan support across the board. Uh, it is passed. We're waiting for that one to be signed by the governor at some point. And I think that uh, it's a, I, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't have an, an issue with something like this. Wait, did you say a Republican and a Democrat came together to pass a bill? Does that, I mean, can you take that uh, up to uh, Washington, D.C. And, and make that work up there for those folks? Um, Senator Pizzo, I know you've been all over this one. You had a town hall earlier this week, and I'll let anybody else kind of, uh, you know, weigh in on this one. Um, what is the status with the unemployment system uh, as we speak? And specifically, is there a legislative fix entail? We know it's broken. We've seen the numbers. Um, I don't want to spend too much time just beating the, a dead horse about how bad it's working, but give us the legislative angle to this issue. Sure. Uh, a quick characterization is it, it's not working. Um, the, the best that we can expect right now is probably 20,000 payments a day. They have not updated the dashboard. Uh, while we're on this, Stephanie from the governor's office called me, so I'm, I'm going to drop off soon and call her back. Uh, we're trying to make the sausage behind the scenes. A legislative fix is really a complete redo of Florida Statute 443, uh, which all of a sudden I, uh, I now know very well frontwards and backwards. 
there are two big issues that, that are going to be coming up before we can do a legislative fix, whether it's by special session or waiting until next. The first is the second section of Florida Statute 443 has the appeals process. So there's going to be a couple hundred thousand people that are going to be deemed ineligible, that don't understand the legalese, base periods, and eligibility. And there is really a commission of three people appointed by the governor. Frank Brown is the chair with two others. And they need to prepare themselves for a couple hundred thousand appeals which are coming down the pike right now. Uh, and that scares me. And we, I talked about that with the governor's office yesterday. But really, the way that 443 works from eight years ago, it trails the third quarter on an unemployment rate in Florida. So you take last year's third quarter, and if it's sub 5%, the number of weeks is at 12. Uh, and then if every 50 basis points that it hikes above five, it extends an additional week for, uh, for recipients. And Peter, really where we're at is everything's eventually going to open all back up again. And we may be going 100%, everything's open, but just because it's open doesn't mean that you're, you're making up the shortfall in the gaps that we had the past few months. Going forward, I think a legislative fix that we can agree with on both sides uh, would, would be adjusting the unemployment rate that it doesn't trail so far behind. Remember, to get a third quarter benchmark of unemployment dictates how many weeks of unemployment you collect. And that's gonna be the third quarter of this year for 2021 if we have a similar incident. That needs to be adjusted, needs to be more in real time. The other thing that's in the statute that, that you know, a lot of times, and Senator Flores taught me this, uh, I think the first or second week that we were in the Senate, a lot of this stuff and these ideas that we have have already been thought up and are actually in law. It's just a question of finding it and enforcing it, and not recreating the wheel. So there's a provision in Florida Statute 443, Peter, I hate to be loquacious here, that actually allows the DEO to throw all of this out and, and adopt and employ a completely new time-specific, issue-specific situation seasonally or temporarily uh, to, to rectify and to reconcile this. And I think that's what we need to, we could be pushing for, uh, you know, in a bipartisan fashion. I'll give anybody else a chance really quick. Does anybody else want to weigh in on this issue? I know unemployment is key in the news. If you do, like, I guess put your yeah. hand up. Or... Yeah, I mean, I'll just say just real quick is that there clearly there are things that we will need to or that will need to be revisited. Um, but I think Senator Pizzo makes makes a good point, and I and I'd urge you all that that continue to stay there is to rather than try and reinvent the wheel, um, you know, let's look at what's out there existing. And then the question that you have to ask is why has that provision not been implemented? I think that's the question that needs to be asked right now to DEO, you know, governor's office, whatever. Why have we not used kind of some of the existing flexibility that already exists? Um, and, and, you know, how can we, how can we work within that? Um, because no matter what happens, one thing that will absolutely stay the same is that will always be harder to pass a law than to repeal a law. Even if we all agree on it, it will still be hard. So we have to try and work within the laws that are already existing. All right, I've got a couple of um, panel or excuse me, attendee questions. There's a lot of interest in the um, uh, the district cost differential, um, and quite honestly, that's not something that we focus on as much in Tampa Bay because we're kind of in the middle. Whereas I know that you know the cost of living and so forth, the cost of teaching, so much more expensive in South Florida as it is compared to uh, uh, to North Florida. Um, but I know this was something that you all worked on as a delegation. It was a place where you, where you found some agreement. So I'm going to let anybody who wants to weigh in. Um, that didn't get over the finish line last time. What, what does it look like going forward? So Peter, this is, this is Vance. I'll take this one. Um, 
I think this is one of the great uh, untold stories of education funding in Florida. And, and maybe just, you know, if, if, if uh, Florida politics wants to write a story about it, maybe they will. I mean, it's the <laughs> fact that there is one person in Florida uh, at Florida Polytechnic who is single-handedly creating a, a, an algorithm to dictate how our school districts get gets, how our school districts receive dollars is, to me, it's, it, it's a borderline conspiracy. And this has been something that we've been dealing with for over a decade. Miami-Dade County has lost hundreds of millions of dollars because the formula is flawed. Not to get, and, and perhaps it's not written about because it's very, very technical, but currently Florida uses a, an FPLI, a price level index to dictate uh, how dollars are distributed to, to communities. And they use intangible benefits um, not related to compensation to, to justify the formula. So for example, they may use for Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, Broward, proximity to the ocean as an intangible benefit of living in those communities. And therefore, you get to go to the beach so you don't have to make as much money. Well, everybody in the, on this call knows that if you live close to the beach, it probably costs more to live close to the beach. And you know, it's been this ongoing issue that unfortunately has been um, political because some communities are well served by the current district cost differential and others are not. And unfortunately, Miami-Dade is a community that has been deeply hurt by the current formula. What we proposed over the last two years is to use a comparable wage index. Um, you know, the, we had experts come in and, and speak before our, 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 our committees on the issue. And what was fascinating about it is the experts could not even explain how the gentleman at Florida Polytechnic was creating the formula. They couldn't, they couldn't replicate it, which to me, if you're talking about transparency and accountability in government, okay. Then let's, then let's look at that. So I, I give enormous credit to the House leadership for um, pushing forward a formula that will actually bring um, an additional $14 million to Miami-Dade County Public Schools this year, in spite of the fact that we weren't able to change from FPLI to the CWI. But this is going to be something, and I, I see some of my colleagues on the, on the Zoom nodding, this is going to be something that our delegation needs to rise up and, and, and convince the rest of the state that the, that the equation that we're using for funding public education in Florida is inequitable at its core. And it's flawed and it, and it isn't transparent. And, and to me, again, it, it, a lot of times it just comes down to politics and which communities are getting money and which are not. But you know, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that this year, you know, the formula was, was adjusted enough to see Miami-Dade get a significant increase, but this will have to be an ongoing issue that Miami-Dade takes on. Did you want to add something, um, Representative Joseph, or was it Representative, I saw you nodding. Did you want to add something here? I echo everything that Vance Lupus said, like, and transparency matters. So if you can't recreate your underlying assumptions in your calculations, then what's the point? And I think the assumptions need to make sense. You know, whether we're talking about mathematically or just socioeconomically, if the things that you're putting into to calculate the DCD um, are flawed, then the overall system is flawed. And that's not something, and I know for some parts of the state, um, it, it serves them to just kind of go with it. And that's, that's the result of um, political negotiations long before most of the people on the call, you know, were even involved in the legislature. Um, but now the question is, what do we do to fix it? Um, particularly for Miami-Dade County, which is disproportionately impacted by the flawed um, formula. We did make a lot of strides, thanks to um, a lot of bipartisan support this time, um, which was not always the case with the Miami-Dade delegation. So I'm, I'm proud of what, you know, 
folks like Vance and a couple of other four forerunners who've been really pushing this um, were able to accomplish, but there is definitely still more to be done um, because it matters for our communities. Like Dade County is not just the people on the coastline. My district is a little bit more inner city and it varies. I have some people you know, closer to the water and some people further from the water. And one of my big things is making sure that we have, we all, regardless of our zip code, have access to a quality education. Um, not because of that, but because we live in a first world country and you should be able to have that. So I'll just stop talking now. No, I appreciate that answer. I've got another uh, uh, attendee question here. Um, with the likelihood that many folks will have to retrain for other jobs in order to re-enter the job market, will the state be considering changes to requirements of our higher education institutions to allow for graduation rates that extend beyond four years? Somebody want to take, who's my higher ed uh, specialist on this panel? Is that you, Senator Pizzo? You want, are you pointing no. at me? No, Pizzo, no, who are you pointing um, at? Pizzo is the uh, self-appointed expert on all things, I think. I'm, um, I'm pointing, <laughs> Peter, Peter, I'm pointing to the one with several leather-bound books and rich mahogany behind right. me. Uh, I see her. Um, so, <laughs> so listen, I, I, that's, that's actually a, a, a really good question. Um, I would venture to say that the direct answer to that question is probably not. I don't think that we're going to um, change graduation rates um, from a, you meant the higher, higher education graduation rates, I think was specifically. So just quick, um, quick history, right? So for a long time, the way that we measure um, graduation rates is based on a six-year graduation rate. Um, that changed um, the last two years um, to measure graduation rates in our higher education institutions um, to four years. Um, and, and I think a lot of people just totally just thought it was always four years, but it had been six years. Um, you know, now the re reason why that's important is because there's funding that's tied to that, performance funding issues that are tied to that. Um, I would say that the, um, the more comprehensive answer to that question is, I think that we will, um, or again, you all, as you continue, um, should look at, um, at how it is that we do performance funding and the different metrics that we look at at higher education. Um, right now, we're, um, we're in that four-year graduation rate. Um, you know, I would say that the concern with going back to a six-year graduation rate is we'd be taking a step backwards, so I personally wouldn't advocate for that. Um, but I think that as you look at the overall performance um, metrics, and, and honestly, Representative Alupas, just like you lament the fact that sometimes um, when we talk about education, um, uh, pre-K and, and, and early learning is left behind. A lot of times when we talk about education, higher ed is also left behind. Um, we, we really spend most of our time talking about K-12. We made a lot of progress on higher education um, over the last couple of years. We've seen that um, translate into um, higher rankings for colleges and institute and, and colleges and universities as we look into what post-COVID um, or new normal looks like, probably the better way to answer that question, like I said, would be how do we look overall at performance funding and are there a couple of different metrics that we maybe need to be, um, need to be changed a little bit. Okay, we're, uh, we're coming to about 10 more minutes. Um, I'm gonna close with a little bit of a lightning round. This is the first part of the lightning round. Try and keep your answers to about 20 seconds or so. I would like to give each of you the opportunity to highlight a, 
uh, a member project or a budget appropriation um, that you think uh, deserves to stay in the budget uh, as we go forward. I'll start with you, Fernandez Barquin, uh, and then I'll move around. Uh, well, I had a, uh, a, a budget proposal for feeding South Florida uh, for, uh, I think it was about $1.3 million. And what it did was that it, it uh, provided, it, it was essentially an educational program uh, to assist individuals who are unemployed um, and seeking work uh, to be able to work in the food industry. Um, and Feeding South Florida has, has done a tremendous job so far in uh, with the food distributions that they've organized throughout the county and throughout the state. But in addition to that, I think uh, it's a valuable program that can definitely, in a situation like this where there's such a high unemployment rate and, and uh, there's a potential, this potential un unemployed workforce, uh, with this program, they can definitely develop the tools that are needed to uh, possibly seek employment elsewhere. Uh, Representative Duran, 20 seconds or so on a, a member project you're especially proud of that got into the budget. Sure. So one of the one of the important projects that I think is going to be more prevalent at this point is a project that funds uh, graduate medical education for psychiatrists. Psychiatry is not necessarily a large. Uh, it, there's not lots of, of capacity in this realm. And if you think about where we are with the kind of emotional and mental sort of trying period with COVID-19, I think it's especially important for us to continue to support these kinds of programs. Uh, it's, it's through Citrus Health Network, who has been one of the pioneers uh, when it comes to mental health and, and behavioral health treatment. Representative Joseph, I know it's not easy being in the, um, the minority in the House and getting member projects through, uh, but was there one that you're especially proud of? Sure. Um, I would say all of my city projects for my municipality babies all need to stay in the budget um, because some of them haven't had funding in like 15 years. Um, but one that I'm particularly proud of is not um, one of the municipalities, but the children of inmates. We see kind of um, tangentially what the impact is for somebody who has a parent in the um, criminal justice system. And this particular program is geared towards um, just supporting those children. And that's something that has an impact throughout the state. So I think that's probably one of the ones I'm most proud of. Representative Lupus, something that's in the budget that you're especially proud of. Yes, sir. A similar situation to, to, to Dottie. Um, two of my municipalities, it's been some time since they've received state funding, both Pinecrest and Palmetto Bay. Both have significant water quality issues and stormwater issues. And both are in the budget this year in a way that I think would meaningfully move them both forward in, in addressing those, those issues. Um, but again, I, I know I'm not adhering to the rules. I also have an appropriation for Judge Steve Leifman for the work that he does with our, our homeless community. And if you haven't seen Judge Leifman's program, it is really, it's world renowned and, um, you know, something that I think is very, very special for our community and doing a, a lot of good. Senator Flores. First, um, allow me to sound like the uh, old lady in the group and saying that out of all the projects you guys have mentioned, at one point in time, I sponsored all those um, in the legislature. <laughs> Um, and one that I sponsored this year with Representative Lupus that I'd like to point out is um, funding for pediatric cancer research. Um, we have the Live Like Bella organization that while it's based in Miami-Dade County, um, they provide very important funding both for research, um, for family funding for children across the state of Florida, really across the country, but the Florida funding goes specifically um, to those Florida families who find themselves in a very unenviable situation where they have a child that is um, sick with cancer. 
And we've been able to get that funding the last couple of years. And hopefully that's one that makes it um, and survives the governor's veto pen whenever that happens this year. Uh, Senator Pizzo, I wonder if you want to answer this or if you're going to defer so that we don't put a big red circle around <laughs> your budget items um, uh, for the governor to take a look at with that, uh, uh, that veto pen of his. But was there anything that you were especially proud of that got tucked into the budget? Uh, yeah, on the, on, uh, to Representative Joseph's point, I have 15 cities that I proudly serve. So asking me which one of my, which city is my favorite child is, is, is kind of a, a tough spot to put me in. There are a number of programs, uh, the smallest asks, uh, that actually le legitimately and directly save and improve lives uh, that are so critically important. We should all expect, I have 25 that made it, we should all expect that a lot of these are going to be chopped. Uh, while I'm up here, I am going to be trying to nudge a little bit to keep some stuff in, but we should expect them to be chopped. But, but let me say this, the, the bulk of my, of my funding requests were for little band-aids. And what I mean by that, Peter, is, uh, you know, 500,000 here, 300,000 here, a million here. That's a lot of money to anyone individually, but for the amount of infrastructure that's, that's needed to be repaired and replaced, for the value, the, the assessed value of this real estate and what it generates locally, regionally, and, and state and, and, and federal, I, I think we're asking for too little on the infrastructure side. Um, and I think you have a number of members of the delegation here, Peter from Miami-Dade, that I think we're gonna be adding zeros onto some of our asks in the future if we wanna be able to retain and, and survive uh, with needed infrastructure. Okay, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna stick with you, Senator Pizzo, and work the exact way back Give me a, this is an easy answer here, give me a letter grade on Governor Ron DeSantis's response to the overall pandemic, as it is right now, May 6, 2020. My kids are in school for another three and a half weeks, and so is Governor Ron DeSantis. So I can tell you what his grade is now, but his final grade, uh, if there's not too much revisionist history, we'll take a look in a few weeks. Uh, and. So far, they've been receptive to a lot of suggestions I've made, uh, but as far as a grade right now, um, C plus. Okay, Senator Flores. Um, I'm gonna say, um, I think that, uh, you know, good for the governor, there's a lot, um, uh, there's, you know, he's, uh, it's been improving, I think, every day. Um, you know, started off shaky, just like all of us. We didn't know how long this was going to last, what was gonna happen. Um, but I think particularly his response in reopening the state in a very measured way has really um, improved and increased his grade. Um, I'd give him a, a B plus, probably even an A minus. Um, and I think that he can get, um, and he will get higher as, as the next couple of weeks progress. Representative Lupus, letter grade for the governor's response. Yeah, I think, I think his approach to reopening is very thoughtful and deliberative. Uh, as well as just the responsiveness to all of our offices and in, in, in dealing with a lot of the issues that we're dealing with. Um, and again, you know, to me, I think like, uh, like Senator Pizzo says, we'll see how this plays out, but it's probably say a B plus right now. Uh, Representative uh, Fernandez Barqueen. I would say a B plus or an A minus. Uh, the governor severely restricted access to nursing homes, which if you take a look at a lot of the statistics, uh, 40 to 60% of the fatalities are in nursing homes. So he did that. He was delayed in closing the beaches, which is definitely something that I, I, I did not agree with. And I think he should have closed the beaches sooner. Um, but I think overall, he is taking a very slow, safe and measured approach to reopening the state, which is exactly what I would do. And, and he's, uh, he's allowing the local governments uh, to have more control over, 
the decisions that are made on the ground because they're the ones that, that know the area best. Uh, Representative so, Durant? So far, so good. Yeah, I, I would go with uh, the same as, as Senator Piz, LSC Plus. Uh, his office has been responsive, has taken a lot of questions, concerns, and suggestions from my office on, on some of the issues that we've seen here. I do appreciate the fact that we are looking at South Florida differently than he is looking at the rest of the state. Uh, and and I think uh, the, over the next several weeks, it's going to be about testing and uh, testing, testing, testing. And then Representative Joseph. We, Representative Joseph, you're still with us? Sorry, unmute. There okay. we go. Um, in some areas, it's going to be mixed. So we, his office, through um, Jared Moskowitz, emergency management, and our office worked to get the first walk-up testing site in Miami-Dade County, which is great. But I think a lot more needs to be done in black and brown communities to really get to some of our underlying needs in light of COVID. Um, so there's much, much improvement to be done there. We've been having a tough time with the Florida Legislative Black Caucus at getting real statistics about the, the death um, rates in our communities. They are quick to tell us about the infection rates, with, which sound mostly good, but not always good. But I need a little bit more transparency. All of that being said, they are super responsive. Um, and where, there room, there, where there's room to fix little things, they've been really good about doing that. So let's language access, grade, if we, if so a letter grade, mm, somewhere, let's just say a C plus, B minus. Stay with us. This is our last question here. Um, I'm going to put it all into one. One of the uh, attendees asks, the Senate president commented that he believes the legislature will be able to stabilize the recently passed budget with the federal CARES funds. Um, with that in mind, will you all be back in special session before July 1st? Yes or no answer. Thank you for um, keeping it 20 seconds or less. Go ahead, Representative Joseph. Uh, most of my Democratic colleagues have requested to have a special session. So yes, if it's up to us. And I changed my grade to B minus. Okay. <laughs> uh, Representative uh, Fernandez uh, Barqueen. Uh, Will you be back in session before July 1st? I think it's very likely, yes. Representative Duran? Uh, I think it, it is very likely. Uh, we'll see what the numbers look like in May. They may be compelling enough for us to do that. I know there's at politics level, we have a lot of new power, new leaders coming in and other people wanting to kind of have their own conversation. So we'll see. But uh, I, I think uh, the numbers should dictate a compelling reason why we should. Representative Lupus. Yeah, I think it's pretty likely, and I think we're all waiting to see what the, the, the numbers look like in the middle of May. Okay, Senator Pizzo, will you be back in special session before July 1? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I think you live for Zoom conferences, by the way. All right, the dean of the delegation right now, Senator Here's, Flores, will you, I, get, will you get some overtime? Yes, but only, only to authorize the spending of federal money. Not to what about it. gaming? What about okay. gaming? This is, this is the part where I thank all of you for being my part prediction. of the panel. I will turn it back over to my betters. Thank you for allowing me to moderate this very good panel, representatives and senators. Thank you, Peter. Peter, I just want to say, uh, I think we've all seen, Peter, we've all, we've all seen on your, on your site and your reporting that you guys have shifted to, to great utility to a lot of our constituents. I want to thank you, Peter, individually. You're the first one to put up the paper application. Yeah. 
for our constituents. You're reporting on the stuff that's really important. We're reposting a lot of your, I, I just want to shamelessly say thank you really for, for your reporting and your staff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in, Senator Pizzo. Thank you very much, by the way. Great to see you. Um, and so, uh, Peter, by the way, you're welcome down in South Florida from Tampa Bay any day. And I'm just loving the, the mountains of Tampa Bay behind you and your virtual background that, um, you know, don't exist. But it's nice to be uh, you and uh, Senator Flores, who's apparently signing her fake books. So um, I just, I, I, on behalf of the Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce, uh, representatives Fernandez Barquin, Duran, uh, uh, Lupus, uh, Joseph, uh, and, you know, thank you so much, Senators Pizzo and Flores. Yeah, thank you as well. It is great, always great to have you here. And uh, thank you for all the great work that you guys are, are, are focused on at our state capitol. We appreciate it. Um, and Peter, again, great, great job moderating, great questions, great dialogue, um, and not, not over COVID, but uh, I'm glad they had a chance to uh, present uh, the legislative debrief for this last session. I have a couple of announcements to make on behalf of the chamber. And um, the first one is that our goals and impact conference, which is typically scheduled for June, will be delayed to the fall of this year. That's not to say that the chamber will not be reviewing or resetting goals. As a matter of fact, we're under a strategic plan uh, preparation that is still underway. And we have some new items to add to that planning, um, obviously crisis management being one of them uh, to a greater degree. Uh, so we will be scheduling that sometime in the fall. But with that said, in June, we will be conducting um, uh, another trustee luncheon um, that is scheduled for June 3rd at noon. Please stay tuned on our website and, of course, our email communications that we've been uh, fast and furious that we've been sending out. Your chamber has been very active. There's a lot that we've been doing from our Thursday roundtables to town halls, virtual meetings. The committees are active. As a matter of fact, Irby, uh, one of our, uh, one of our, oh no, I'm sorry, Irela uh, shared that our resilience committee had a happy hour. Uh, it was virtual, but nonetheless, you know what? You don't have to drive anywhere, so it could become a very interesting happy hour. Just saying. So with that, with saying all that, uh, I do want to reinforce um, what Alfred and and Billy Talbert spoke about earlier today with Miami Eats. When we do get together, obviously we can't distribute lunch to all the participants, but go ahead, order locally, support your local restaurants. Support the, the community, period, and, uh, and, and definitely order that. That's fantastic that we have that. Uh, we look forward to seeing you June 3rd. Um, I do want to clarify something. Um, many of you were very generous in contributing. We did ask for a donation um, to be considered as part of your participation in today's trustee luncheon. It's hard to give a donation when you're not getting, you know, some salmon or salad. And by the way, shout out to Jungle Island. I've seen you guys uh, chiming in on the comments. It's great to have you here. Maybe we'll backdrop Jungle Island next time to make it feel like we're somewhere. But with that said, going into June, um, we are revisiting. We're going to come to a final conclusion. There will very more than likely be a direct cost involved with the trustee luncheon. We want to provide great content, and it costs us uh, money to do so. While we might not be serving lunch, we do need the financial support on behalf of the chamber. We have an incredible staff that's done an outstanding job. That will be my last trustee luncheon as your chairman for the Greater Miami Chamber. It's been a pleasure, but I'll save my comments uh, for that luncheon. Uh, again, on behalf of the chamber, thank you to all of our elected officials, Irene White, Alex for um, FPL and AT&T um, sponsoring. You guys are amazing. Alfred, take care. Ladies and gentlemen, we are adjourned for today. Have a wonderful day. And please, please stay safe. Really important. Stay safe. Take care. We'll see you all later.